one of the fun things about the Grand Paradox that uh, came out when I wrote that a few years ago was being able to really talk about the will of God. And, and it's a, a subject that's obviously so kind of near and dear. We hear it all the time. I want to know what God's will is for my life. Uh, how do I figure this out? How do I seek it out? Who can I talk to that's going to be able to tell me God's will for my life? Or this is God's will for my life, and, and I go that direction, and then a year later, and we all know this, right? Um, the same person that told us what God's will was changes their version of what God's will is. Now this is God's will for my life, and it gets really confusing. And in the Grand Paradox, I talked about how we actually pose that question wrongly, that, that the question shouldn't be, what is God's will for my life, but how do I serve God's will with my life? That God doesn't have seven billion different wills. God has one big heart and a north star for his creation. That his will, that the goodness and holiness and righteousness and justice would reign and bring all things kind of together. Does that make sense? And so when we start with it, what is God's will for my life? We really start at an individualistic kind of place and we get really clunky. And that's why every time when the Super Bowl comes around, we have that debate again, right, about religion and sports. Um, both teams are praying that they would win the Super Bowl. And, and we're really confused. What does it mean about um, those people who are praying when one of these teams wins the Super Bowl? Like, did God somehow intervene? And what does it mean if you're a Cleveland Browns fan and, and you realize God has forsaken you a long, long, long time ago? and that you should just walk away from your faith. Um, or if you're a Beavers fan. Um, but that's a little too close to home. Um, but so we've flipped this thing around, this idea of God's will, and, and I really wanted to kind of frame it again that, look, we're here to, to search out God's will for all of us, and then we get this unique opportunity to serve into it. <clears throat> but that leaves out a whole discussion. And uh, that discussion is, um, that's nice that I'm supposed to serve God's will with my life, but what do I do day to day? How do I make my decisions? What do I make of the loneliness that I feel? Um, what do I do when there's really no one to tell me where to go and I just feel absolutely alone and desperate? Um, Henry David Thoreau, the, the Boston transcendentalist, wrote a little essay called Life Without Principle, and, and you can find it in the back of almost any copy of Walden, uh, where he talked about going and living on, on Walden Lake. But, but this little essay in it, he talks about most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Just think of that language. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I think even in the church, a lot of times we come in and, and deep, deep, deep down we are, are crying out, and we don't really know how to connect that to our faith or where God is at in that whole conversation. So I'm kind of excited about this morning because we get to, to flip to the individual side and say, what does it actually look like for us to, to hear and to know that God cares about the small things in our life? We're going to be talking about the counsel of God. So real quickly, Wonderful Counselor is obviously the, the theme of this series but this idea of counsel, what, is it, what does it mean? What does it kind of look like in the text? It's something that only shows up 22 times in Scripture, the word uh, counselor. It's basically 
used of people that are advisors to someone in political authority or a king, that they're the people that are coming around and giving wisdom or, or instructing on how to conduct a war or a military campaign. And the better the counselors you have, uh, the better off you are as a leader. The, the worse your counselors, the worse for you as a leader. So here's just a couple verses. Second Samuel 16 uh, just gives us the idea. Now in those days, the advice of Ahithophel, you try and say it, um, Ahithophel uh, gave was like that of one who inquires of God. In other words, he's a counselor or an advisor that seeks God's input um, so that he can direct things in a godly or a righteous or just way. And that was how both David and Absalom regarded all of his advice. That's one way of kind of seeing this idea of counselor. Uh, if we switch directions a little bit, Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 says this, Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Uh, Romans will say very much the same thing. Paul writes, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The idea is that God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's discernment is so above everything that that umbrella stretches all the way to the edges. There's not a place we can go stand or, or anywhere where we're going to have a perspective or a word of insight to say to God, hey, have you thought about this? Or I've got a better idea than, than your idea. If you just came at it this way, God, your whole kind of way of reigning um, would be more just or more righteous, right? There's no place where we can jump to and give God counsel. So another way of kind of looking at the counsel of God. But here's the first thing. There's three that we're going to talk about. Here's the first one uh, of kind of the points of the sermon, but it would be that Scripture serves as God's counsel for us. That Scripture serves as God's counsel. Psalm 119.24 uh, says, Your statutes are my delight. I guess the whole point of this TV was so I could look here. Um, and I, had, I made sure that I was taller than the TV, just to admit my insecurities. If it was taller than me, I, I, I would have felt, um, anyways. Uh, Psalm 119.24, your statutes are my delight, they are my counselors. In fact, Psalm 119 is a chapter that goes on and on and on, just doesn't seem to end in Scripture, over and over again, talking about how the decrees of God, the, uh, the law of God, God's instructions to us, all of this is this nurturing, wonderful counseling that we can kind of orient our life around it, that we can go to it with questions and push into it and seek answers that then we can apply that somehow we're not alone. These statutes are with us as a counselor and they guide us. The flip side of that, Proverbs 19.3, um, is that a person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. I learned this uh, proverb back when I was 22 years old, a new Christian, and it seemed to make so much sense to me, partly because I've been hanging around with uh, 20, 21, 22-year-old guys for the last couple years in college. And this is like the theme verse for um, someone in the, the fraternity. 
Uh, a person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. It's our own choice to follow our own way or the way the world would have us go, instruct us to go, counsel us to go. Here's where you're going to find life. Here's where you're going to find happiness. And when we choose to do that, that's our own folly. We're not listening to the wise counsel of Scripture. We're not looking to the, the laws or the decrees of God. And yet somehow when we find ourselves in ruin, we raise our fist to God and say, how did you let this happen to me? We play the victim. Um, we can continue here with Proverbs. Uh, Walk with the wise and you will become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. In other words, if you surround yourself with people that have the experience or the maturity or the knowledge to kind of fill your day and your conversations with the right kinds of thinking so that the, the little aha moments are going on uh, in your mind and you are able to grab that, to take it in, to live and pattern your life around that, you will grow up and, and be a part of that community. You'll be wise. But if you have a, com- um, for a companion of fools, if you surround yourself with fools, people that are just saying silly things, stupid things, wrong things all the time, reinforcing kind of the wide path that leads to destruction, as Jesus would say, and not encouraging you to take the, the thin path, the, the thin road that leads to life, then somehow you're going to come to harm. This idea that scripture is this guide, that it provides God's counsel into our life, that we can bank on it, grow wise, and experience the fullness of what God wants for us to have. It's amazing. But then we get to Isaiah 9, chapter 6, and it goes so much deeper than that. So this is the text for our Advent series, but Isaiah 9 Verse 6, it simply says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This is one of the ways that we know this is about the Messiah. No king, no prophet is ever referenced in the Old Testament as having divinity. Mighty God. There's, there's nothing like this. This is pointing forward. Not only that, but this is the third time in as many chapters that we see the promise of a child coming from God that's going to have this unique relationship, this divinity. And the whole idea is that, that as, Isaiah, uh, as Isaiah was prophesying for 40 years through the life of at least three kings... And, and talking about the dark days that are upon Israel, he was doing it from the town of Jerusalem, so right there where the kings of Judah were living. And as he's prophesying, he's, he's doing it in this context where everything is bleak and everything is going wrong. And these verses here are, are looking forward to the restoration, the salvation, the renewal of the hope that these Israelites would have. And it's remarkable that over and over and over again, it begins with the birth of a child. The people are hoping or longing for a king, for a military redeemer, if you will. And Isaiah promises a child. And so when you get to the New Testament, you see this thing play over um, all over again. Just this idea that everybody's expecting for a military ruler to come to free them up from the Romans. But yet a child is born. Um, And it's fascinating. And so this idea of wonderful counselor, uh, a couple other things that are interesting about the book Isaiah, 
Uh, Isaiah writes as someone in the line of wisdom, um, the wisdom tradition. So if you study the Old Testament, we group the books into the history books. Uh, We group them into the wisdom literature, which is Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Job, etc. And then we've got the major and minor prophets. The interesting thing about the book of Isaiah is the, the form and the structure of the letter is written a lot like a wisdom book. In other words, people wonder if Isaiah was a scribe, if he sat kind of in that position, if he's coming out of that, he's a married guy with two kids. But the, the bigger thing that's kind of easier to grab hold of is that he was writing to the king himself and to the king's counselors. So in other words, he's writing his prophecy and his telling for these people in the language, um, the vernacular of these rulers and these elites, trying to help them think through and pattern their advice, their way of reading the situation or understanding the times in line with what God is telling Isaiah. And so you have this whole interesting thing kind of collapsing down around this wisdom prophet here, and he's talking even about Jesus coming and being the wonderful counselor. Uh, The book of Isaiah is the second most quoted book in the New Testament, the second most quoted Old Testament uh, book in the New Testament. The top one is, anyone want to guess? Further to the right. Psalms. Um, The first one is Psalms. Interestingly, though, if you switch it around and and you don't talk about direct quotations, but you talk about allusions. So what book is alluded to the most in the New Testament? It's Isaiah, not Psalms, with Psalms coming in number two. So this, this idea of all of this wisdom and prophecy coming and beginning to talk about the Messiah who's gonna come to have the government on his shoulders so that somehow the, the political and the social are gonna marry into a just society. It says in verse seven, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the first thing is, is we saw that scripture serves as God's counsel. The second thing I would say is that Jesus embodied God's counsel. Jesus embodied God's counsel. Had a conversation, interestingly, just two weeks ago in Portland, was out to dinner with one of the guys that works for the the Bible Project. It's kind of a whole outfit that's doing these short videos, animated videos about all the different parts of the Bible. And this particular guy went and studied Hebrew in Jerusalem, then came back and got his doctorate in, in Hebrew studies. And his dissertation and kind of his favorite book is Isaiah. And throughout the night, as we're having dinner with a couple guys, um, over and over again, he kept making all these analogies about Isaiah. So like where I'd be like, it's kind of like the beavers, right? And you guys know what I'm talking about? We'd be in the middle of this conversation and be like, oh, it's kind of like the book of Isaiah. It's like split into this and then that and then this order. And everyone else is kind of looking at this guy going, it's completely missed on us. Like we don't know what you're talking about. Um, But he was so into Isaiah because as you wrap into this, you're now learning things about Jesus that started all the way in the Old Testament. And the first thing was that that this Messiah, the one that is referenced or called mighty God, this Messiah embodies the wisdom of God. Isaiah 11.2 says this, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him 
the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so we see this with Jesus and his baptism and the dove representing the spirit coming and hovering on him. And then kind of the transfiguration, God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This idea of the link with God the Father. Colossians chapter two, verse three echoes the same thing about Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That Jesus, in some sense, with the Spirit, exhibits and has within him the knowledge and the wisdom and the discernment of God, that that's kind of a part of his nature and his character, that the world, in some sense, says Colossians, was formed through him. We talk a lot about the beginning of the, the, the Gospel of John because it has this famous phrase that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the word for word there is the Greek word lagos. And we think it's just kind of an interesting thing. We don't realize that what John was doing was writing specifically to a group of people in Ephesus. So tradition has it that John ends up leaving. John lived the longest of all the apostles. That he ends up traveling to Ephesus um, with Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, with him. There's actually a, a big kind of church castle outside of the ancient city of Ephesus. If you go there today, that's dedicated to Mary. They believe, some believe that her tomb is there. Uh, John Paul II went and visited and kind of commemorated or blessed it back when he was alive. But this idea that John set up shop, that was his hometown. The home area for him is Ephesus. And Ephesus was also the hometown to Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic philosopher. So Heraclitus, hundreds of years before John, talked about the world being created by the divine logos. Same Greek word. And that this divine logos was in some sense the rationality or ordering principle of the world. And when John is saying in the beginning was the divine logos, this rationality, this wisdom, this knowledge, this ability to bring about order and, and to create, this divine logos was with God and was God. And then he goes on to say, this is Jesus. If you if you people in Ephesus want to understand how all this came to be and where it got its shape and the whole oughtness to, to reality, why, why justice matters or righteousness matters, all of this came from the wisdom and the counsel of God being done with the, uh, the Holy Spirit and the Son, Jesus Christ. And, and so you see that Jesus is, in many respects, embodying God's counsel. Proverbs chapter 1, um, it's a... It's more than just anecdotal, but all throughout the Proverbs, we see wisdom being likened to a woman. So Proverbs 1, verse 20, out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square, and on top of the wall, she cries out, and at the city gate, she makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? And she asks them to repent, that she's going to make known her teachings and say, um, I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock you when calamity overtakes you. Um, but they will call to me and I will not answer. They will look for me and not find me since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice, the counsel, and spurn my rebuke. 
They will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. So this idea of wisdom being embodied, kind of personified as a, as a woman, beckoning and crying out to us, pleading with us, as it were, to come and, and to choose the way of life, not the path of destruction. And so you see throughout Scripture this idea that Jesus is within himself the counsel of God, giving the words of God as one speaking with authority, calling us into the way of life. And not only does he kind of embody wisdom calling out, um, but Jesus is also an example for us as one seeking God's guidance. Um, So we get the embodiment of the word of God, the wisdom of God. We also get a picture of Jesus going to God for the relationship so that he would not be uh, alone, so that he would know kind of the guidance or the direction of the Father. Jesus goes out and finds a solitary place, does this many occasions. In fact, the word solitary is used only of Jesus in Scripture except for one spot. Um, Solitary, always Jesus, pulling away, going to the mountaintop, spending time with his Father, getting up early in the morning to go out and to listen to God. It says that he wrestled all night before he came down the mountain and asked 12 of his followers to be his disciples and his apostles. In other words, this big decision to make, and he goes up on the top of the mountain and spends a sleepless night. Most of us, right, we have a big decision to make. I hope I get a good night's sleep tonight. I think most of us would, would actually look a little bit more like Jesus, though. I've got a big decision to make. I say I hope I get a good, good night's sleep tonight. In reality, I'm tossing and turning all night looking at the ceiling. Um. I used to think when I was doing that, that was just stress and I was somehow failing as a, as a disciple of, of Jesus. That Jesus said, don't worry or be anxious about anything. And so I'm, I'm losing sleep all night and I'm, I'm thinking, I must be a failure. I don't have big enough faith. And then I began to realize that I had a wrong picture of Jesus on the mountaintop. Um, my picture of Jesus on the mountaintop, uh, imagine for a moment with me a precious moments figuring. And, and so my picture was of a pastel-colored Jesus uh, looking kind of porcelain um, with his hands clasped on his knees on the mountain, and it looked a lot more like kind of the good kid prayers that you would pray. Jesus, let me just paint a different picture, not that this was every single time he went to the mountaintop, but Jesus said over and over again that he had no place to sleep, that he used rocks as pillows, Every now and then, I'm sure he was invited into a home when he was in a city, but a lot of time, uh, he was out in the countryside with his disciples. So the better picture, more accurate picture, would be of a group of guys with a fire between them to try and keep them warm, and that they're kind of spread out like the Old West movies, where every one of them's kind of curled up on their side, maybe with a rock, and that's how they're sleeping. And Jesus, instead of being around the fire, being warmed at night with the disciples, walks away to the top of a hill where it's probably a bit breezy, And he's by himself, and I can picture him leaning up against a tree with his legs just kind of tucked underneath him and huddled up and looking a lot like me all night long, wrestling or stressing, if you will, about the big decision that he needs to make 
asking God to speak, to guide, um, to make it clear, to make it known what it is that he should do in the morning with regard to these, say, 12 disciples. I think the only difference between staying up all night and getting indigestion and looking a lot like Jesus is whether we're just inviting God into that conversational space at night when we're wrestling through what it is that we need to decide. That God, I don't know here. I'm, I'm at a loss here. But this feels really big and people are counting on me. And so let me roll through it again and again and from a different angle and from a different angle and then try and identify the things I know to be true and the things that I just can't figure out. And God, do you have a word into this? What can you confirm or at least begin to feel good to me in my gut that somehow at least this part of it, I know your thinking or your will. The only difference between what we're doing already and what Jesus did is that Jesus was doing this very much as one who was yearning for the counsel of God, as we can too. Um, We talked last week about Psalm 74. Um, and I picked it because it's one of the most bleak psalms and has this phrase right here. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. No one that speaks for God. No one that gives his counsel to us. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. We just feel completely abandoned. And not only that, this is coming on the heels of the Babylonians going in and tearing down the temple of God and putting up their signs or their symbols over every place that God once was worshipped. So if God was worshipped here, now there's a symbol of Babylon. And so for these people living in this context, it's as if their God had been defeated. Have you ever felt that way? That you don't want to admit it to yourself, but you feel as if somehow God has been defeated or vanquished. And you don't know what to do. And this is what the psalmist in Psalm 74 is wrestling with. And then he makes this beautiful turn and goes to, but I know this to be true. There's none like God. There's no one who can save like God. And he goes on to speak about the creation narrative, that God is above all the world. And then he comes back to his problems and says, God, deliver me for your name's sake. Um, Those psalms are beautiful ways for us to pray our experience they map onto how we feel. It's, it's kind of the prayer book of the Bible. The interesting thing for me is that this is the same prayer book that Jesus prayed. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, that was coming straight out of the Psalms. Jesus on the cross was praying the Psalms. And so I have to believe when Jesus is on the hilltop by himself wrestling with God that he's likewise praying the Psalms. And that these Psalms, these prayers of the Bible that we get to look at and that they kind of somehow shape the way we pray, we begin to look and see that all of our angst, our, our, our life of quiet desperation, all of that can come to a God even if we feel sometimes he's been vanquished. And then we can remind ourselves, like the scriptures say, that we can remind ourselves with that counsel that no matter what it feels like or seems like or looks like, God is above all things and there is none but him who will save us. And then we can bring ourselves back to this position of faith saying, God, even if I don't feel it now, I look to you, come deliver me, save me, redeem me, if if not only for your name's sake. That that's kind of what Jesus did. And in fact, 
we believe that the Bibles were inspired, the Bible, uh, the books of the Bible or the, the biblical texts were inspired by God, which means, think about it now, that God had a hand in inspiring prayers to be written that would become the prayers of the community of God's people so that we could find ourselves in those prayers articulating our felt experience and loneliness and that somehow God saw fit for that whole circle to be pulled back around. In other words, God wants us to find him in the middle of the night when we're wrestling with the decisions that we need advice on. And we see Jesus not only as the wonderful counselor, but as the one showing us how we too are supposed to move forward this way. Um, Interestingly enough, this is no different than what the disciples picked up. The disciples didn't just ask Jesus to teach him how to pray. The disciples followed Jesus for a while and he kept doing this behavior, going up on the hillside, praying, coming back down. And finally one of them, probably one of the extroverts, was like, hey, um, could you show us how to do that? In other words, could you teach us so that like you, we could find ourselves alone, experiencing the presence of God and, and somehow seeking his guidance and being comforted in that. Not your, uh, my will be done, but not, you know what I'm saying. Um, I, uh, you guys know this about me. I can't memorize scripture when I'm on the stage and repeat it back. So the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will be done. But that I'm praying first and foremost that I'd be able to know your will and serve it with my life. And now forgive me my sins. And now give me my daily bread. And now lead me on into the way or the path of righteousness. Jesus, teach us to do what you're doing. Interesting thing, by the way, side note. Um, uh, 1095 Urban II gives this probably the, the most important speech in the Middle Ages. And it's a speech calling for a holy war, what we know as the Crusades, to go and fight uh, the Ottoman Turks first and then to go down and try and capture Jerusalem. He was doing it because the Byzantines, who were Christians, had asked for him to, to come help them geopolitically to push back on kind of um, the encroachment of the Muslim world. Uh, it turns into something so much more than that. And the, the operative phrase was when Urban II got to the end of his speech and then he declares in Latin, um, just exclaims it, God wills it. God wills it. And the audience of, of knights and clergy begin to pick up this cry and they start yelling back, God wills it. God wills it. And that's where people started cutting up cloth and putting it on their shoulders like a cross. This idea from Luke 14 that you have to take up your cross and and carry it. And so these people started cutting cloth in the shape of a cross and putting it on their shoulders. This idea of taking up the cross For the next several hundred years through six crusades and a lot of ones that never even got numbered, this phrase of taking up the cross was used over and over again. You'd have a king of France who declared, I am taking up the cross. Or you'd have a a king like Richard the Lionheart say, I am taking up the cross. In other words, I'm going to go on crusade and fight for the Lord against the infidels to take back Jerusalem, etc. That one phrase, God wills it, 
creates this, this crazy complex thing that we've been living with for hundreds of years about people killing in the name of Jesus. And his use of the phrase, God wills it, was another one of those weird, strange uses, right? What is God's will for us rather than what is God's will and then how do we serve it with our lives? And geopolitical warfare probably doesn't show up in that. Um, but Luke 14 is Luke 14. And what it says is that there will be people that will leave homes, that will leave mothers and fathers, that in some sense will um, esteem their children and their own lives less than what is normal in lieu of God's guiding or leading in their life. That as God moves and leads and guides and gives his counsel, that his counsel oftentimes will be of the most difficult variety. Um, And yet somehow that's how God guides his people. So the third one kind of comes in. And it's this. uh, If scripture serves as God's counsel and Jesus embodies God's counsel, that the Holy Spirit contends with us to search out God's counsel. The Holy Spirit contends with us to search out God's counsel. If God's going to call us to do hard things, we have to kind of know it with a degree of clarity and not only know it, but have a degree of power to be able to lean into and follow where God leads us. And so um, John 14 says this, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, this one will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Uh, Elsewhere, we're uh, told that the Holy Spirit brings comfort. Elsewhere, we're we're told that we can have fellowship with the Spirit. And when Jesus leaves and the disciples are still sitting on that mountain where Jesus has just given the Great Commission, they're looking up and the angels come and they say, go wait for the one that Jesus promised. They didn't say, go take up your cross, God wills it, and, and charge forward. They said, no, Go wait for the Holy Spirit to come on you in power. And then, as God leads, as the Holy Spirit directs, you can move forward. And so sure enough, they left singing, and they left in joy, and they waited. And and sometime later, the Holy Spirit comes on them in power, changes everything as that group of people now goes and begins to evangelize and to witness to the risen Savior. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So what does that really mean for us? Um, what it means is that we can see a little something in Matthew 28 that I don't think we fully understand as we should. Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. Um, we, we know it typically kind of as an evangelism passage, passage, but it's really his farewell to his disciples. And he says in Matthew 28, I um, hope you get there quicker than I do. Matthew 28 As they go up on the mountain, the 11, because Judas is no longer a part of them, um, they go up on the mountain and they worship him. And Jesus comes and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, the counsel, the wonderful counsel that I've brought and given and embodied, you teach them that. And then it says this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We often take that last bit and rip it out and go, 
Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. You should feel that Jesus is with you. And that's kind of true. But what Jesus is really doing here is he's picking up on a formula that exists all throughout Scripture that when God asks or when God counsels, when God gives difficult advice to his followers to do challenging things in this world in service to his will for the world, when God asks that, he always says that he is the Lord, for I am the Lord, thus saith the Lord. In other words, he claims his status, his authority, he asks us to follow in obedience, and then he promises us something. I'll go with you. My power, my presence will go with you. You don't have to lead a life of quiet desperation. When you have the sleepless night, I'll stay up with you through the watches of the night and talk it out with you. That, that you don't need to be afraid. Moses, don't be afraid. I will go with you. Joshua, don't be afraid. I will go with you. The prophets, don't be afraid. I will go with you. Even Mary gets some of this kind of promise of God going with. But Jesus comes along now and he does the same thing. I have all the authority on heaven and earth. I have the authority to ask you to go and to follow my direction. And it's going to be difficult and it's going to be hard and you're going to have sleepless nights. But I'll be your counselor. A good counselor brings comfort partly just because of their presence and their wisdom and the whole idea that you know you can lean on them. And as Evan said at staff meeting this week, a good counselor lets you talk yourself all the way out until you reach the end of yourself and that you have all your words out there and that when the counselor kind of comes back at you, you know in that first instance that that wise and wonderful counselor knows you, has heard you, has created safe space for you, and now can direct you in a way that feels so good because you feel and experience the love. Jesus says, I will go with you all the way to the end of the age, my presence, my power, my guidance, as we are, are, are willing to follow God into different places, difficult places, hard places, endure the, the wrestling and the stress, we find God there. We find Jesus there. Um, I think that's one of the beautiful parts of Paul talking about wanting to know the sufferings of Christ. It's not in the easy times that I, I seek God. It's not in the easy times I find myself reciting the Psalms. It's not in the easy times that I go find out the wisest and most mature of my counselors. I only call Ed Underwood now and then, right? But it's usually not to tell him like, hey, I had a good day today. Clemson won. Um, I'm really fond of uh, the sunset today. It brought about something really beautiful in me. Just wanted to share that, Ed. Um, I call Ed when I'm feeling insecure. I call Ed when I'm feeling lonely. I call Ed when I need to talk to someone who I know understands the kinds of things that I go through or am, am going through. Um, I drive out to Matters to hang out with Rick Gerhardt when I want to be and to feel that there's somebody else like me that sees the world in a certain way and that in that fellowship, I can be sharpened or encouraged, right? It's in the difficult times, in sharing in the sufferings of Christ, that we come to find the wonderful counselor. We're going to have, in just a minute here, an elongated worship time. Uh, we've planned for this for a while. Um, and my heart would simply be this. 
um, that those of you who are trying to follow God into the hardest parts of our faith, realizing that it's the beginning and the finish line are usually the easy parts. It's the, the desert in the middle that's hard and long. And that to the degree that you're coming in and there is quiet desperation or there is loneliness or there is a big decision or there is even the guilt or the pain of knowing that God asked you to do something a week ago, a year ago, 10 years ago and that you've been running from it or hiding from it because somehow you didn't know or understand that if you chose to walk in obedience, God would have gone with you to help you. And deep down inside, you feel the desire to go back to that place and say, God, I will. I'll pick up my cross. I'll trust you. If you just walk with me, if you just meet me in the middle of the night, I will go where you want me to go. Um, If that's you, if you're just at wit's end because there's so much going on around you and you don't know how to give counsel or, or advice or wisdom to the people in your life, this worship time is for you. If you don't know how to find the words to pray to God, that's what these worship songs are. They are prayers set to music. Just sing your prayers in this time. But we come to the communion table realizing in the brokenness, in sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, in coming to this place that Jesus has given us a symbol that says, I will always be with you. And I am always the deliverer And I'm always the one that is going to have grace for you. And I'm always the one that's going to forgive your sins. And I'm always the one that calls you and beckons you to come and follow me into the way of life. That I am personified wisdom. And that you can come here one way, remembering your baptism and leave a different way. That there's a cleansing, a means of grace, a finding yourself grounded again because I am a wonderful counselor. Father, we, um, we pray for this time of worship now. Corporately, would you do something in this body? Individually, would you just touch our hearts that we can feel that we are not alone? Can we feel, Father, an ounce of your Holy Spirit in this room um, and just meet us in conversation as we try to wrestle out the human condition. We pray that in Jesus' name.